And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Hi, Joe. Hello, and Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe. Fleur Hurston, Seb Stafford-Bloor. Lecaire de chocolade. Is that like a new combination European language that you've... Well, no, I've said Happy Easter. Happy you did it in German, a French I've accent. said Happy you'd Easter. You can't talk in German in a French accent. Yeah, the second you thing you, you said was, you said tasty or the most tasty chocolate. I said, I said tasty <laughs> chocolate, question mark. I said Happy Easter, tasty chocolate. Makes no sense. I'm trying to appreciate that people speak in, you know, people don't speak formally, do they? They don't go, have you had some tasty chocolate? They go, tasty chocolate? Le Caire Chocolade? My, my German is very literal, very formal, and also very useless, it turns out, for now. <laughs> no, I guess you didn't understand. Well, anyway, uh, it's the TIFO podcast here. Uh, we're going to talk about some football. Ugh. Little stop at uh, Chelsea West Brom. We talk about Leicester City, Manchester City. We talk about Dortmund and the Palaver. We also uh, talk about uh, a little stop on Arsenal-Liverpool, some time spent in Yorkshire, and of course a little sojourn across the European continent. Uh, and we find ourselves at the end deep in the quotes and facts database in popular cinema history, as it, as it transpires. Uh, so it's a full-packed, fun Tuesday episode. And uh, of course, I, I hope everyone celebrating the holiday of Easter had a nice Easter do you know what I thought I was thinking last night when I was going to sleep, Seb? Tell me. I thought, you know how they always say in that Bible there, or not in the Bible, but the Christians, they say, and three days later he rose. Yeah. He wasn't, though, was it? It was two days later. I suppose if you were being a little pedantic about it, yeah. I mean, it depends. Like, maybe, maybe it's but closer. He, but he died on a Friday. This is Jesus I'm talking about, yeah, by yeah, the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Died on the Friday. Happened. Yeah. And then he rose on the Sunday. That's two days later. Yeah, Turns but what out. Time, what time on the Sunday? What time? Oh, that's the crucial <laughs> thing. Like, don't don't know. It was like after lunch then. You know, like, so. <laughs> Sorry. T- t- no, no, t- no, no, no. They say on that. the third day. I know. Yeah, all right. You have to fucking butt in, so. don't you, and ruin the bit, Alex. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You're so desperate to be, correct me. That's my bit. You've ruined my bit. Anyway, if you like formality... Then you, and informality, if you like any kind of communication, then you should uh, subscribe to The Athletic by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO because there you can find the, uh, the formality of David Ornstein in, the, in his weekly column where he tells you all kinds of things uh, that y- y- you didn't know beforehand and only he does. Or you could read The Informality of, I've got this the wrong way around, haven't I? Of something else, which is also of great value to you. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Right now, well, I will leave you in the uh, the warm hands and the cool embrace of uh, Seb Stafford-Bloor and Alex Stewart.
Let's begin with uh, Chelsea 2, 5 West Brom. That's 5 West Brom. Now, in typical TIFO podcast preparation style, uh, I uh, had planned to watch the Leicester-Manchester City game on Saturday, and uh, I thought, well, I can't watch the evening game. I've got plans. I'll watch a different one. What one of the first two? Hmm, Chelsea-West Brom. Hmm, Tuchel, who hasn't lost yet, versus West Brom. Hmm... I'll watch Leeds Sheffield United. And what a fool I am. <laughs> I think this happens to me almost every weekend. I miss the game <laughs> that is the important game. But I have watched the highlights. Uh, and I can say from the highlights, all the finishes were wonderful, weren't they? Lovely finishes. Also, I can say that Allardyce joked in his post-match interview uh, that it's a shame that his team couldn't have spread some of those finishes out across other games this season. <laughs> Which I think is quite funny. Uh, eight points adrift of 17th. Eight games to play. Allardyce says they need to win five of those eight and maybe a draw or two, which would be winning more games in the next eight than the whole rest of the season. So, Seb? No, no, I, I don't I don't think this is going to be a late bid for survival. But actually, I think what was interesting about this is it, it's, it comes two weeks after I watched a Bayern Munich game in which they went down to 10 men after an Alfonso Davis red card. And it was really interesting to see um, the respective uh, reactions to that. Bayern Munich carried on as if nothing had really changed, and then steamrolled it, I think it was Cologne, and scored five times. Chelsea, Tuchel's response was to sub Hakim Ziyech and bring on Andreas Christensen, which felt a little bit sort of... The fetus might be a bit too strong, but it felt like that conditioned the performance of the rest of the game because it was as if he'd forgotten he was playing against a West Brom team. And it was like Chelsea settling into kind of digging into their foxhole for the rest of the match against a side that just don't score very many goals. And it would just it felt very bizarre from that point on. I can I can it's easy to rationalise why he would do that, I understand. But if you think about who he left on the pitch, Jorginho, he had um Azpilicueta and there was another centre half on the pitch, Kurt Zuma. So you could have constructed a little makeshift uh, back four out of those two, Reese James and Marcus Alonso. And he could have played, you know, what was was still quite a balanced sight. It felt like it felt like sending the fire brigade out to rescue a cat from a tree. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Well, there we go. Freak game. What do we learn? Nothing. Let's move on. Leicester City nil to Manchester City. Uh, Manchester City are apparently six to one to complete the quadruple. Imagine that. Uh, the league is one, of course. Semi-final against Chelsea in the FA Cup upcoming. Uh, final against Tottenham in the Carabao League Cup. And, of course, a quarter-final against struggling Dortmund in the Champions League. Uh, yay or nay, Alex? Not to the uh, fixtures. They are real. They are oh, travel, right. Okay. Yay or nay to the Gosh. quadruple. <laughs> Six to one. Off uh, uh, yes. I mean, the treble, yes. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that it's, it's impossible for any English side to beat them. Uh, in the remaining competitions. I mean, obviously, they might lose a fixture in the Premier League, but uh, overall, not. I still worry about the Champions League, the fact that that Pep has this tendency to overcomplicate games. If he continues to play as he's played in the Premier League, um, then I think it is a genuine possibility that City will win the Champions League. The, the major contenders feel quite flat this season. Um Obviously, PSG are looking shaky at the top of league, or not even at the top of league. Now they lost to Lille at the weekend. Um, Liverpool, Real Madrid, 
yeah, that's a difficult one to call. It's it's really only Bayern that look like they might give them a significant issue. Uh, and I think that's City's side of the draw as well. So they would presumably meet in a in a semi final instead. Yeah, they got they got the rough route to the final. Yeah, but then that I think that probably makes it easier because if you get through the rough route to the final, then then the the match that has the biggest nerves and the biggest sense of occasion is against an easier opponent. So um, yeah, I mean it's it's definitely possible. I mean, obviously, it's definitely possible. But um, I, if 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 they're going to win the Champions League, it feels like this is the season that they could have a better shot at doing that. Seb, what do you think? Just on that, it's funny with City though. You never quite trust them in the Champions League, do you? There's always, no matter how powerful they look and no matter how well they play, there's always a Lyon or a Tottenham or someone there to kind of trip Maybe them a up or in Monaco. I don't know. Dortmund are a mess. Dortmund are a big, big mess. They were absolutely dreadful against Eintracht over the weekend. And they look like they're, I mean, beyond just how they're playing, there's some really bad signs and some bad language going on. Uh, bad, Not bad language. No bad language? Swearing. swearing. Bad body language. <laughs> how they're are swearing your German lessons and, going? And, You're picking up all you know, sorts of things now, aren't you? There's poor grammar and everything going on in that Dortmund side. Right. Well, we'll come to talk about Dortmund, uh, Eintracht, Frankfurt. But Seb, let me ask you instead. Leicester, who are a comparatively difficult opponent for City within the league... Um, kind of looked relatively, well, not swept away, but it, the game didn't feel competitive at, at any point, really. Um, and what, what's happened here, Seb, is that I've actually written this question for Alex, So, <laughs> rather than you, even <laughs> though I started to address you. Alex, I wanted to ask you a little bit about their formation, because we, we were texting during the game. I couldn't quite work out what was going on. I, I had to ask you. Uh, tell me about it. City's formation. Yeah, the, the asymmetric 4-3-3. Oh, yeah. So they... Um... What they were doing was Gabriel Jesus was playing very much off the left-hand side, so he was tucking in quite narrow. Riyad Mahrez was keeping the width on the right-hand side, uh, and then Mendy was basically doing the whole of the left flank on his own. Bit unfair. Well, yes. I mean, not entirely on his own, because, you know, obviously someone will drift over there, De Bruyne might push up into the left half space, that kind of thing. But it but it gave this sort of slightly unbalanced um look to them, which which worked pretty well because obviously they, they were up against uh wing backs and in Albrighton, who is a very good crosser of the ball but is by no means a natural wing back, um, I think that meant that Mendy didn't have to worry quite so much about that kind of one on one battle. Um, because he could he could get all Brighton on the back foot quite a lot, um, and Amati, who is actually really a right back by trade, was kind of having to double up and and help all Brighton defending that flank, which meant that there was space in the channel for Jesus particularly to attack, um, but also whichever Man City midfielder was pushing forwards into that area. And I, I don't know if it was like a specific tactical tweak predicated on on how Leicester would line up because Leicester's lineup was a little surprising perhaps but it was certainly very effective in the course of the game I mean City absolutely dominated them particularly in the first half yeah what was interesting as well is um it feels like because City have so much of the ball during mo- the vast majority of games right that the in terms of the way that they line up it just they're in a different sort of stratosphere to any other team or to most other teams their choices are different to teams that are expecting 50% or less of the ball right uh, because they don't require people in the same positions as, as often 
Yeah, and they don't. I think they probably don't require so much. So, for example, when Leicester were attacking, you, you had very much that emphasis on trying to get quick vertical balls through to to Vardy or release Iheanacho in a pocket of space, who could then play the ball through to Vardy because they knew that there was a very good chance that those were the only type of balls that would actually get joy for them um, because City were leaving their two centre-backs quite deep and on their own. Um, so they were trying to isolate them. City are able, because they have so much of the ball, to be quite patient when they need to be and to circulate possession quite easily. You, you know, there, there were some really, really good examples of players pushing up or dropping in and City's ability to circulate the ball through those movements meant that, yeah, Leicester kept their shape quite compact and, and defended that quite well. But it means that City don't have to kind of, I don't know, n not hit and hope, but look for those kind of rush balls, look for the guy who's running in behind all of the time because they, they can probe and they can work out where the weakness is. They can pull an opposition from one side to the other and then surgically um, strike in the gap that's left and it's it's just really impressive to watch yeah it's kind of depressing um so <laughs> why is it depressing just, just the totality of it you know oh okay you, you, I, I thought you know i thought before the weekend began i thought oh leicester that's a bit that's a tougher game for city you know maybe we'll see something a little different to normal and again you know to leicester's credit they they, they did um they were calm uh they played they, a, they played nice a very moments, good game didn't they they had some. They had some nice moments. I'm not trying to take anything away from them at all. I don't think Leicester were bad. I think Leicester were confident and played a competent, good game. And Man City beat them two nil easily. And it, it's just yeah, yeah. whenever I watch one of those games, I sort of think, you know, a half of me is struck by Manchester City's, uh, you know, dominance of the ball, but also some of the more uh, creative and uh, exciting to watch moments that they that they that they you know design. Um, on the other hand, Leicester, I just Leicester are think struggling with injury game. a little bit, aren't they? You know, that that's they did. I think Leicester are still a fantastic team, and it's oh, not... absolutely. And you know what, Jamie Vardy had two really good opportunities. There was one at nil nil where he was through on goal first, and they scored. They scored the goal that was ruled as offside, right? Um, I don't. You know, it could it could have gone differently. It's just that the way that it happened to go. Uh, was that Manchester City scored two goals during moments of um, domination within the game, and it, and it felt probably it felt probably easier than it was. I think is maybe the way of putting it. Um, but Manchester City, they, they they have this incredible ability to kind of sterilise a game, don't they? Uh, and and I think that's that's the thing. You end up you end up waiting for the the beautiful moments that they create because they're in control of what is created on the pitch. And uh, sometimes the goals that they score are kind of scuffy and doesn't really matter what they look like. And other times, you know, you get, uh, particularly when De Bruyne is involved, something delightful, as as we saw with that incredible through pass for uh, for one of the goals, um, which is, you know, was very, was very exciting. I wanted to pick up on one, one, one City player before we move on to talk about Leicester, though. Uh, Sergio Aguero, who's leaving on a free in the summer. Um, he'll be 33 by the time that he does, but presumably he still has something to, to offer at the top level. And I was reading uh, something on The Athletic the other day uh, while I was watching the game, um, which detailed a lot of the options that he has uh, and that different authors picking different places. The one that st stood out to me, I and mean, the obvious ones were places like Atletico Madrid and Barcelona and a, a few few teams in Serie A, maybe going back to South America. But the one that stood out to me is very interesting was Tom Warville's pick, which was based on the data. Uh, or at least based on Tom Warville's data, he he said Chelsea, and then he went on to talk about how Chelsea would actually suit, how they're kind of looking for that 
number nine goal scorer, how, you know, uh, it wouldn't be an unusual sort of move to make. Uh, I don't know, it just it, it kind of did make sense to me as well. I'd never thought about it before. Seb? Yeah, but it's it's the Premier League's great sliding doors moment, wasn't there, that when um, when yeah. Chelsea played against Atletico when Aguero was there? And I thought John that was Terry... Robinho. No, I think it was... He, wasn't he the great sliding doors moment? In the sense that he could have gone to that he thought any he was other going club to Chelsea, being, yeah. I suppose, but I mean, he didn't really have enough of an impact to be a sliding doors moment. Like he, no, he could have been sure. if he if he played well, but he was just a massive financial burden. Yes, um, he was not. A, yeah, <laughs> did not set the, set the league alight. <laughs> but it's a great. I always find that funny because I, I supposedly Chelsea, um, the Chelsea higher ups asked John Terry about Aguero after he'd faced him when he was still an Atletico Madrid player. And Terry was a kind of nah, mate, rubbish, nothing to him. Oh <laughs> God, is that true? Let's, let's why go and sign why would you ask, like one of the most arrogant defenders in Premier League history, if a striker he was playing against was any good? Because you're, it's going to be the answer you'll get is now, nah, mate. I had him in my pocket all night. Don't yeah. worry about you'll it. You'll never amount to anything. <laughs> Just ridiculous. You know, you know, you know. How do we know that? That was, an, that was uh, an article on The Athletic, which we actually converted into a video. So oh, you geez. narrated that. <laughs> <laughs> In one ear and out the other. So what you know, you know where, where I'd like for Aguero? Um, I think it'd just be really interesting. Give him a couple of years to uh, to tear up MLS. Go and play yeah. for him to Miami. Because I, I know that, yeah. that MLS are moving away from that model of employing ageing players. Has but Gonzalo Higuain's gone enough. there, hasn't he, though? What's that? Gonzalo Higuain's gone there. Yeah, it, it kind of... Up. It, he's um he's quite chunky these days, Gonzalo Higuain. I think Aguero is is a much better player now than Higuain is at the moment. In, Inter Miami would definitely have to get rid of at least one Someone. of their designated players to make that's that happen. Saying, right? that's, that's why I'm saying. You mean that's why I'm saying that because he's a, a chunky pay packet, <laughs> isn't he? That's rather really chunky, is he? Yeah. I mean, he yeah, stylistically in in MLS he'd probably fit um, Atlanta United a bit better, um, who are managed by Gabriel Heinze, who's a Bielsa disciple. If, it, it feels like the issue here is probably durability because like the one problem I have with that Chelsea thing, yeah, like as a technical solution, it's all fine, but that's on the basis that Aguero is fit enough to play 38 Premier League games, which he has never been at any point of his career, even during his 20s. So, Can I interrupt you? Yeah. To say that isn't Duracell, isn't that a great brand name? Sure is, man. Sure is. Like it's of screwed, the brand yeah. names around, Duracell, it is what it says, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. But, but it's yeah. a good word. Whenever anyone says durability, I think about Duracell. No? Yeah, no, that's unarguable. Good point. All right, well, there you, we'll then move on. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. That was a really worrying time being a Rangers fan, not knowing 
if you'd have a team to support or not. The Scottish Football League's only acceptable position will be to place Rangers FC into the third division. It wasn't so much a football match you were involved in as a test of manhood. And with your support along the way, we will get back to where we belong. From the bottom to the top, the journey is over. Rangers are back. It all ended spectacularly in Europe when he had an argument with Rangers fans in a bush. It's a huge, huge honour for me to be sat here now to be the manager of Rangers. And, you know, the excitement levels are very difficult to contain at the moment. Drilled by Arfield, Colin Goldson looking to score again! And he has scored again! And Rangers are in such a good place now! Everybody in Scotland was talking about 10 this at the start of the season and the only number they're now talking about is 55. To get the full story of the fall and rise of Rangers, subscribe now to Beyond the Headline. Leicester City, uh, they remain in the FA Cup semi-final against Southampton upcoming, of course. A not insurmountable gap between third and fifth, though. Um, but they are one of Alex's favourite teams to watch, apparently. So, Alex, take us through your thoughts on the team's flexibility, and then I'll ask you about the double pivot. I just really like the way that... I mean, so, so I think Brendan Rodgers has has firmly kind of re-established his, his coaching ability. And we've talked about this on the, the pod before, where he's sort of got rid of that slightly buffoonish character that he had, particularly that came across in that documentary, Um and he's just shown himself to be a. <laughs> Sorry, the jaws. The memory of that always makes me laugh. Sorry. Well, it, no, because it's, it's genuinely the funny. The envelopes is is one of the standout moments of Premier League history. But he's shown himself instead, I think, to be a very tactically astute and flexible manager. Um, Leicester have got a very good squad. When they obviously, you know, at the moment they're missing Barnes. Madison's just coming back. Soyuncu's she's out, but. It gives him the ability to do various things with that squad. I think the real interest for me, firstly, is Castanier, um, who can play either side as a wing-back and has just excelled coming over from uh, Atalanta in Italy. Uh, I also think the midfield is fantastic. I mean, in Ndidi, in, in Tielemans and Madison, uh, when they're all fit and together... You basically have a midfield three that does every single thing that you would want a midfield to be able to do. And they kind of overlap each other in their constituent skills. So, you know, they're all relatively good ball winners and pressers, but obviously Ndidi is really top drawer in that position. In Tielemans, you've got ball progression. You've got the ability to hit longer passes. Um, he can push up and take the odd shot from, from kind of deep as well. And then Madison is more creative playing in the space in front of the opposition back four or three, picking holes for other people to move into. And it, it's just a really, when it all clicks together and it flows, it's so well done. But I think what what Rogers has done is he's given them the platform to be able to play that way. Um, and they adapt little by little to, to individual games. I thought against City, they did exactly what, you know, they should have done. They, they were compact, they sat deep and they looked to spring forwards. And yeah, they were unlucky, but but on their day, I think Leicester are just fantastic to watch. Seb, how do they kick it forwards from here, though? Because you know, presu- presumably, unless they do slip from third to fifth, 
Uh, we'll see Leicester in the Champions League group stages next season. Um, the team's already pretty strong. It's difficult to identify individual areas on the pitch that, that could use strengthening. It feels a little bit like there is, you know, a two-gap system where there's a gap between the teams outside of the top six and then those those bottom four of the top six, if you will, and then the gap between that four and the top two. And I, I struggle to see how Leicester can improve again. I'd love to be surprised, though. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because you could see a situation in which Leicester actually made some very nice, gentle progress over the summer, but still dropped in the table just because the spending power around them is is so much greater. You'd expect, for instance, Chelsea to throw some money around. Um, you know, um, Manchester United, I'm sure, will, will spend lots of cash and um, uh, increase the gap um, between second and third. I think what's I think in Leicester's case, it's not necessarily a question of buying better players. It's two things. It's making use of some of the resources which haven't quite been embedded yet. So Jengis Under is a really good player, someone I like, um, who could make a, a more tangible contribution perhaps. But also maybe a little bit of variety. Like Vardy isn't getting younger. It feels like we have this conversation a lot. Collection what about extending his life length? What about some kind of age-prolonging therapy for Jamie Vardy? <laughs> well, that, I mean, if you can find a fountain of youth over the summer then that would be a benefit but i'm thinking more of a third option between uh vardy and ianacho because i don't think ianacho is quite a number nine he's more as a 10 to me actually so i wonder whether yeah so i wonder whether a player who kind of um who has a little bit of overlap between those two players but also can offer something slightly different someone who's going to grow into a role like i think I think Leicester in a very similar situation to the one uh, Pochettino Spurs were in back in the kind of around 2015, 2016, where you can't just go and buy an off the peg player. You have to buy some interesting pieces. And I think they've done that. Like I, I've got faith in them to do that. If you look at like players, um, I, I suppose Pereira is, is, is the one that, um, that that people think of a lot. He's been, he's an, when I'm fit, he's an excellent fullback. Um, if they can bring everybody back fit, if they can, find a couple more indeedy type buys because great player though he is now i mean no one batted an eyelid when he joined the club so he's very much a player that they've they've molded and very much a player that they've um whose reputation they've accentuated so i don't know it's interesting they have to be smart leicester it's difficult you can't they can't go and plunder Borussia dortmund for instance so it's really no, tricky indeed not well best of luck to them you know mm. hope they have a great hope they have a great success uh, we'll be back after this break to talk a little bit about the floundering Borussia Dortmund, uh, a little bit of Arsenal-Liverpool, some uh, Yorkshire talk, sure, and a little bit more in the continent too. Quite a lot to get through. So uh, here we go. Y- Yorkshire talkshire? <laughs> Yorkshire talkshire. Uh, <laughs> okay, we're back from the break now. Borussia Dortmund won two Eintracht Frankfurt. Holy hell! Defeat puts Dortmund seven points back from fourth place to Eintracht, uh, most likely meaning no Champions League football for Dortmund for the first time since 2015. A hot dog! That would be financial uh, disaster, of course, and would potentially necessitate the sales of Haaland, who holds some kind of Champions League record, I can't remember what it is, and also maybe Sancho. Uh, And as a result, we have decided that the team would probably need goals from somewhere else. Uh, interestingly, when they were chasing an equaliser on Saturday, the second most prolific pair on the pitch behind uh, Erling Braut Holland was Mats Hummels. So that's a good sign. Uh, Alex, replace them for me, please. <laughs> no, no, you can't. And of course, one of the things that's really interesting about this is that 
when people were talking uh, last summer about the Sancho move potentially and also looking forward to, to Holland moving off as he would likely do everyone assumed that Dortmund would secure Champions League football and would therefore be in a financial position to only have to sell one of them and that obviously would have allowed Dortmund to kind of fish around and try and find somebody else to fill the gap and so on but with this circumstance as it is not just because the players may actually want to leave. I mean, I think it's fair to say that both of them will want to play Champions League football, and that is a legitimate desire for a player of that quality. Um, they're going to have to get rid of both of them because they need the money. Replacing them, like I say, it's it's not possible. You've You've got arguably two of the best young players in the world full stop and two of the best young players in the world in their positions. Uh so you can't. And I think one of the interesting things with this is Dortmund will presumably sell them for quite a lot of money. How much of that money will be needed to fill the hole left by the absence of Champions League football is a big question. So we don't really know what kind of market we're shopping in. There's a couple of names. I think interestingly, potentially, for example, Callum Hudson-Odoi, who is out of favour at Chelsea, hasn't played that much will feels like maybe you know he isn't isn't going to get significant game time potentially a loan move there I mean you could make the same case for loaning Tammy Abraham actually um Jeremy Doku who's a young uh Belgian player 18 um who's over at Rennes now um is a very exciting right winger uh and could step into that Sancho role someone that we've also talked about um on a sensible transfer CD, I can't remember who it was, but um, Victor Chashankov, who's uh, over at Dynamo Kiev, is a really nice, exciting, tricky right-sided winger, great dribbler of the ball, quite a low centre of gravity despite being five foot ten, able to kind of weave his way through players. Um, so he, you know, potentially again, depending on how much money. There is also one other name I'm going to chuck out quickly who I came across, a guy called Luismi Cruz, who is in <laughs> Sevilla's. Why are you laughing, Sam? I don't know, because I just knew as soon as you said, as soon as you shifted your tone of voice, I knew I was never going to have heard of the player you were going to about to mention. Yeah, no. Um, so, so he is in Sevilla's uh, reserve team currently. Um, and he is 19 years old. He's a left-footed inside forward who plays off the right and is a really exciting little dribbler. Uh, creates a lot of chances cutting in field. Dortmund do occasionally have the ability to pull these players out of relative obscurity. Um, and so, you know, I'm not saying they keep doing this it, don't they? Well, they do have a good this track record. I'm thinking through this whole, this whole segment is we could have had this conversation at any point in the last 10 years and gone, oh, they're about to lose really, like, what, potentially one of the best players in the world. And then they just get another one. Well, I, I don't think they've had to... I mean, okay, when Lewandowski left uh, to join Bayern Munich, um, that was... I mean, actually, even arguably then, Lewandowski wasn't quite in the same bracket that Haaland is now. Um, he went on to become arguably the world's best striker for a period of time. Could be argued that he still is. But I don't think they've had to fill this kind of gap at the same time in this kind of way. I mean, these are players who who will, I mean, they're, it's an expression that everyone hates, but they are generational talents. Sorry, Stan Collymore. 
I wonder whether there's a little bit of diminishing faith in their model because it feels like they might be about to be punished for dropping off what has been overachievement for a few years, I'd say. But it is a real mess there. And Edin Terzic, okay, and Edin Terzic is a kind of night watchman, but the football he's presided over has been chaotic at times. We don't really know which Marco Rosa we're going to get in Dortmund. So if you're a young player and you're a young player of the kind of the Holland caliber who's probably looking to stay for three years before bouncing to a truly elite club, do you have faith in um, in Dortmund's ability to get you there or do you think you're going to get stuck in like a Holland type situation? Well, like, yeah, I think that's right. And you would look It's harder at... to recruit when, when that's the case, I think, probably. Yeah, and, and I think the, the recruitment probably hasn't been as on point as as it was prior to that, um, but it's more of a management thing. I mean, yes, they they have got uh, Bellingham, who clearly is going to be an exceptional player, but it's hard to pinpoint otherwise. You know, their their last kind of really big transfer of a young player was was Alexander Isaac. That didn't work out at all. He's now actually doing really well for Real Sociedad, but you're not seeing players coming through or developing with quite the same frequency and you're not seeing the bargains of the kind of Shinji Kagawa or Lewandowski type who get picked up for peanuts when they're already 25, 26 or whatever, then excelling. Um, so I think it's a combination of things really that, that are sort of breaking down. I mean, Dortmund spent a lot of money. Was it last summer when they were getting in people like Torgan Hazard, um, What's the name of the the left back Schultz? They got in, you know. It's Julian Brandt, Paco Alcacer. Yeah, Brandt was a was another hefty signing. So the, these were. It felt like Dortmund were moving away slightly from the the model of you know undervalued talent in slightly lower leagues and thinking no 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 we're going to splash big on players that are already well established in Germany, particularly in in Schultz and Brandt's case. They sell so many. Like, I'm looking back through the history of players sold now, uh, and uh, 1920 departures. Abu Diallo went for nearly 30 million. Paco Alcacer, Julian Weigl. The year before that, they sold Christian Pulisic for nearly 60. Yarmolenko even to um, to to West Ham. Uh, yeah, selling players to West Ham. <laughs> yeah, but it's 18 million pounds. You know, and that's one of three uh, around that mark. Usman Dembele for 120 the year before. Emer- uh, uh, Aubameyang also. So I think I think basically if you keep going back, you get to Hummels, Gundogan, Mkhitaryan, Aubameyang, Usman Dembele. Like those players would be. Con- I know they're not Holland uh, level because obviously Holland is you know one in a billion or whatever. But my, the point the point I'm making is that they sell players who are going to top teams. In, in the world, those elite teams pretty regularly. Yeah. And they always seem to create another team which is competitive. The Dembele example's a really good one though, because I mean he could he could have been that good potentially, but for the injury issues that he's had. Um but the reason they were able to get so much money for him was because Barcelona were flush with cash from the Neymar sale and needed to buy somebody big and exciting. And I don't think that market exists at the moment. I mean, they, they will get good money for Holland and Sancho, no doubt at all. But they won't get silly money for them. And Dembele arguably was silly money. They'll get silly money for Holland. Define silly, though. I mean, Holland in, in a market... 150 million pounds? 
I don't know who can afford that. Yeah, I, mean, I really don't. don't. I, I think in, a, in the market of two or three years ago, then yeah, one hundred and fifty million pounds would have been. I mean, Holland could have been like a record-breaking transfer. I mean, no anything over one hundred million pounds is silly money, though, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I, I just wonder whether, like, I think that maybe getting over one hundred million for 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 Holland this summer requires a little bit of an auction to take place, which seems. It, let, let's put it this way: if Barcelona find one hundred million pounds to spend on Erling Holland. I think I've got some questions to ask. Do, do you know what I mean? Like that's quite. You Barcelona don't find that down the back of the find, They I mean, Barcelona financially are out of that conversation. They couldn't I'm finance sure. deals of five million euros in January. You know, so all of a sudden, that I don't know. I, I'm not smart enough to understand how that can happen. I, I think Real Madrid could. I think Real Madrid are, are that like their financial position is considerably less precarious than Barcelona's. Um, but you, you really have to look at either PSG or a Premier League side for Holland. I don't think anybody else can stump up that kind of cash. And and what, what Dortmund are in a tricky position because they want maximum revenue from they that They want sale. top dollar. Of course. Um, but they also don't want to... They, they don't want the situation to force their hand and end up getting 60 or 70 million for Holland because they know that if they don't sell him, he's just going to sit around and sulk for a year, which would be bad for everyone. He's already sulking. I mean, he's, he's already, already sulking, yeah. He, he stormed off the pitch after the game um, in Cologne. He was flapping his arms around a little bit towards the end of the game at the weekend against Eintracht. To be honest, he wasn't very good against Eintracht. He missed a couple, a couple of really good chances, but it, that's already begun. I don't think you want to see what this is going to be like in a year's time with him if you don't let him move. Well, it comes. It cometh. The saga begins. He's a Champions League baby. You know, what are you going to do? You can't not finish in the Champions League and then expect him to stay. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Anyway, we move from Dortmund, from Madrid, from Barcelona to Sheffield, where we are... Uh, not Sheffield, Yorkshire. I mean, we are technically going to Sheffield, but Yorkshire is what I meant, because we're also going to talk about Leeds. Uh, this is a tale of two diverging Yorkshire teams. Welcome to the narrative-led part of the TIFO Football Podcast. Sheffield United, one year ago today, Seb, we were discussing United as an example of what a newly promoted team could do. Yeah? Do you remember that? Yeah? We, yeah? I remember it vividly, yeah. <laughs> Whoa, what happened? <laughs> Nothing good. Nothing good. <laughs> I mean, we've got... Uh, they lost this game, by the way, 2-1 to, to Leeds. 
Uh, one open goal, sorry, one goal in open play in the last 10 games. They failed to score in six of the last 10. Uh, six or seven goals from open play all season. Another sort of example of an odd thing was Rian Brewster being signed for £18.5 million at the end of the transfer window last summer, which was apparently a deal originally sought as a loan um, and wasn't wasn't even budgeted for by the ownership. But while there was backed when Liverpool wouldn't, wouldn't play ball over the loan, uh, and uh, he scored zero goals and does not appear to suit the style of play at all. Of course, there, there are more details to this story. Um, uh, I would I would advise uh, listeners to uh, to read the work of Richard Sutcliffe of The Athletic, uh, who writes in depth about Sheffield United every week. I was reading some interesting stuff about the, the, the behind the scenes of the Wilder um, uh, d- d- departure. So there is more going on there. Um, I know lots of the football-y side of things has been discussed this season seven. We've, we've talked to Alex about it before and done some of the tactics stuff. Uh, but in terms of the, you know, what, what I was interested in, is, is, is interested in here is that Leeds are essentially in the position that Sheffield United were in last season, a successful first campaign. 42 points reached after this win. I, I, I want to know how it all went wrong for Sheffield United. Why, you know, should we be... Uh, uh, sort of tapering our expectations of Leeds on this basis? I don't know. I think I see Leeds and Sheffield United as different cases because Sheffield United were collectively like a, a group of reclamation projects. There are a lot of players that were never expected to reach championship level, let alone the Premier League. There are players whose careers were nosediving before they um, arrived at Bramall Lane. And what Chris Wilder managed to do is create something some kind of mastic which allowed them to overperform collectively. I think when something interferes with the perception of a manager within that group or it changes his ability to communicate with them, I think maybe the drop-off can be really dramatic. And I think also, like I, to me, looking back on the start of this season, it felt like uh, things went wrong in the beginning and then all of a sudden you saw the unravelling and just, the football getting worse and worse and worse. Leeds, I think Leeds have been dealing with a slightly higher calibre of player. Um, don't get me wrong, Leeds have been a basket case club for a generation and um, Marcelo Bielsa has done wonderful things to seemingly cure that. But I think if you look at the quality of the players that have been giving contributions, so Rafinha is a really good example, isn't he? Like in the first season when Sheffield United came up, Sheffield United would not have, have, have tried to find a Rafinha from somewhere. They'd have they'd have relied on Ollie Norwood and they'd have done very well and they'd have given John Lundstrom a chance and, you know, they, they did brilliantly well in that first season. I think Leeds is... I think Leeds will probably regress back if they don't... Um, if they don't recruit well over the summer. Also, there's always that... There's always that sort of slight lack of regression in energy when the Premier yeah. League's new and exciting and different and... I don't know. Um, but I think they're slightly different cases. I don't... Um, I don't worry for Leeds. I'd worry if Bielsa left. Well, this is a thing. This is a natural knock-on. I'm going to ask Alex about this because I want to know, not that you know, but I want to know, and again, I'm not I, I'm not asking you to tell me. I, I just, I want to know what the long-term plan post-Bielsa is because it was a gamble, you know, on and off the pitch and financially uh, to, to hire him for Radrizani, which has clearly paid off. Bielsa is very exciting to watch and has done wonders, as Seb said, for the club. Uh, but Radrizani is a strategic owner and will be very aware that Bielsa won't stay forever. And I think, you know, now that the team are in the Premier League, pr- provided or presuming that they can um, solidify that success, 
the next transition, the one where Bielsa leads, uh, leaves, will be presumably like the most important for many, many years either side of it, particularly because he's so unique as a coach and the team is built entirely around his style of play. It almost makes me think of when Tony Pulis left Stoke and they were trying to replace him, you know. Uh, and I know it's a very different different sort <laughs> so of football. Damning. But no you know, one I mean, has ever it, compared Bielsa and Pulis before. But they but, should because, but like, your what, point what, is you know, absolutely the, correct. Yeah, like they were. You know, what, the point I'm making is that I don't know what other coach out there would come in and 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 play exactly the same style of football that Bielsa does. Probably very few. Uh, and and you know, the point being is Bielsa has like almost total control at Leeds over recruitment, over the style of play, over all the rest of it. What does that team look like after he leaves? Because many of those players, as similarly described by Seb, uh, for the Sheffield United example, a lot of those players were signed to play for for Chris Wilder in that in that kind of odd formation in in you know positions which, which didn't suit other teams or you know that might be one of the reasons why we can why we saw some the, the success of some of those reclamation projects. What we have at Leeds is a bunch of players or some of some players who might not be Premier League level if they weren't playing in that team, and I think that's a reasonable argument. Yeah, I, that, so that second point is a fascinating one um, because it, it it begs the question of how much a player's improvement is system-based and how much is, is something that could then be picked up and transplanted out. I think that there are Leeds players who have improved drastically under Bielsa who would now be able to go and play for other teams and do really, really well. Um, I mean, Rafinha is an outstanding player. I think Luke Ayling's a great right back. Um, look at the improvement in Ben White under Bielsa on that loan spell. He's now back at, at Brighton doing well. So I'm not sure it's an entirely system predicated thing. I think you're right that the 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 ruction between Bielsa being there and Bielsa leaving is is going to be enormous. And it's going to be enormous not least because he is a enormously associated with the success of that club but also he's an incredibly popular figure there and it feels weirdly like a lot of Leeds's promotion has kind of been pinned on him as this kind of messianic figure who's taken them back to the promised land and people will cry when Bielsa leaves Leeds which is not something I massively understand but it will happen you can no you can't go out and get a Bielsa you can get a coach that has been brought up in the Bielsa school of football. Um, and Aren't they all a, more expensive <clears throat> than Bielsa though? <laughs> well, no, because there's, so there's quite interesting ones, for example, like um, Gallardo, or Gallardo, Gallardo, it's the yeah. double L Spanish thing. Um, is so he Spanish he's, or Argentinian? Uh, he is Argentinian. It might be, might be Gallardo. So he's, he's the River Plate manager. Uh, yeah. most successful manager in, in River Plate's history, um, has done extraordinary things there, is clearly a, a, a Bielsa admirer. Um, you've got Eduardo Barrizzo, who is currently the manager of Paraguay, having had uh, a couple of stints in Spain, a very unsuccessful recent one at, at Athletic Bilbao, but he did pretty well at Sevilla, he did pretty well at Celta. Gabriel Heinze, who's the new uh, Atalanta manager, uh, again, as in the as in know, the ex defender, as in the ex Man United defender, yes, which is potentially a reason why he wouldn't want to go to Leeds, but um, and San Paolo even, who is you know uh, just taken over at Marseille, um, 
I wasn't that impressed with Marseille in the game I watched uh, against Nice. But again, he is somebody who has taken over Bielsa coach teams before and done well with them. So those options are out there. Um, I think the the hole is less of a coaching hole and more of a figurehead hole. And I think that in that regard, Bielsa is literally impossible to replace. Yeah. Well, there we go. We're going to find out in the years to come, aren't we? Uh, next up, a brief sojourn to North London. Uh, Arsenal, nil, three Liverpool. Big improvements for Liverpool in a couple of areas. Uh, but I see that most of the notes here for the game that I didn't watch are about Arsenal, Seb. Yeah, I felt like I was being a bit vindictive and sort of <laughs> enjoying it a bit too much. Hey, but positive, positive point first. I thought Liverpool were great. I thought the way they moved the ball was really nice. There was purpose and I know it's a bit of a cliche, but there was some actual intent with the ball. Like it felt as if they actually, especially the forward players actually enjoyed having possession again. Do you remember that period during the season, kind of just after Christmas, maybe from a little bit before where it felt that every time, like, like every time they got the ball forward into the final third, they would find their way into a cul-de-sac or overplay or um, that, that seems to have gone. And there's just, there's that snappy directness that Liverpool had at their best. Um, I'm not saying that they're, they're not a team without flaws, but they were much, much better than Arsenal. It's I think what's surprised though, isn't it? Because Arsenal yeah. as a team are a team that don't really create cul-de-sacs. Yeah. <laughs> it's just melted my brain. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I just mean they're shit. I think I think I think what's I mean if, if you if someone were planning the city of Arsenal, uh, there wouldn't be any you know one way systems or any dead ends. You just you know you can just you could skate through. Everything's yeah, I, made out of hologram. This is too harsh. I feel like that's quite a textured comment that we could have. I don't even with. care. I'm not. I don't think this. I'm just I trying to find I, I, a I, funny I, segue. You know what? I, what surprised me about Arsenal? I think why I was so damning in the notes is because. Okay, Liverpool played well, but going to that game at the Emirates with the players that Arsenal were able to field, it was the first time that they were able to start a um, a lineup which included. Uh, I think I've got this right. Uh, I sent what? What was the statistic that I sent to the WhatsApp group? Yes, someone said that this is the first time this season that Arsenal have started with Aubameyang, Lacazette, and Pepe together, all in the same starting eleven. Yeah, which, which is mad. But also, if you think about Arsenal's approach, and it might be maybe we'll tag Adonis into this, but. It felt as if from the very first whistle, they settled back and they were content to play without the ball and on the counter-attack, which if you look at where Liverpool's shortages still are, so at centre-half, because that's a defence still in recovery, um, a goalkeeper who ended up playing quite well on, on Saturday night, but has had a couple of bad moments over the last six weeks, uh, you just felt there was, there was no intent to examine any of those issues, which really surprised me, given the players that you have at your, uh, you know, at your disposal to do that with. It's bizarre, and I, I I didn't understand a lot of what I saw, and um, in the selection either. I think um, Alex they made didn't a, press the wobblers. Well, they didn't. They didn't put any pressure on the players that they surely should have known could hurt them. So like, Thiago is a really good example of that because I think he had um, I looked it up yesterday uh, ninety nine touches of the ball, and most of those seem to be in situations where he was under no pressure. He was allowed to take time over his passes and to kind of dictate the point of attack, but also the speed of the game. And and you'd think, right, objective one, when I'm facing a forward line, which includes Mane, Firmino and Salah, 
is to kind of cut off the supply. That's a, you know, um, and I, I accept that Liverpool at their best have many different um, routes of uh, attack. But in this instance, I want to take away Thiago because that's where the control is if you're Liverpool, especially away from home. And if, you know, if I want to be able to bring in my attacking weapons, you know, as Mikel Arteta, I need to have the ball. I need to have control of the game. I, I don't want to just sit there and rely entirely on my ability to counterattack. It was, I don't know, maybe maybe I misread it. Maybe I enjoyed Arsenal playing badly a bit more than I should have done. I don't know, but that's how it seemed to me. Do you know what's been in my head ever since you said Thiago had 99 touches? Tell me. Red balloons. Luft Berlin. Auf in Renwegs am Horizont. It's amazing yeah. how many different covers of that song there are. The German one's the best one, man. The German's the best. One, easily the best one, yeah. Neuner, Neuner, Luft balloons. Who doesn't want that in their head? Anyway, uh, we've talked for a long time in this podcast. Alex, do you have anything that you are desperate to say about Liverpool or Arsenal? Um, I just didn't understand what Arsenal were trying to do in it. it it's very disappointing. 0.15 XG at home with Aubameyang, <laughs> Lacazette and Pepe ooh, and ooh, Odegaard is 10. That's Adonis, Adonis, have you got anything you want to say? Yeah, this is <laughs> just a bad day. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. We're talking about Spurs. <laughs> Fuck uh, off. Spurs aren't on the podcast plan, unfortunately. Adonis, no I don't know if there's some kind Spurs. of rigging no one cares here. About Spurs. Right. Uh, a little bit of rigging. Uh, no, you're right though, Alex, because I, I thought that too. Somebody said this to me uh, as a thought, and I thought, oh, I think that as well. That those three forwards and Erdogan played, and that seems like a good thing, doesn't it, on paper? But actually. No, nothing. I, I'm not actually convinced that it is that good a thing on paper. I I, I think Pepe oh. was a massive overpayment. I think Aubameyang looked disinterested for much of that game and Lacazette is quite slow. And if you're looking to play, you know, I, I think I think Arsenal, in Arsenal's own defensive third, they were trying to play through the lines, which against a very, very dynamic press is not very sensible. Um, they weren't looking to go direct enough. Uh, and when they did look to go direct, they generally tried to do it centrally to a player who's not very fast and likes to drop off quite a lot and take passes to feet rather than just ping it into the channels and and, and exploit the, the speed of of Pepe and, and Aubameyang. It just, it all felt very disjointed. Okay, cool. And a couple of last bits, but we can talk about these more on on Friday's podcast. Uh, PSG, not a dead cert for Champions League qualification through Liga, uh, or maybe not direct qualification anyway, Um, nor Juventus. So I guess we can, you know, watch some games and then discuss that on Friday's podcast too. Very exciting and interesting stuff around the continent in this strange year of COVID football. It's Joe's Quotes and Facts Database. Ah, welcome to the database. And today, we're talking about two Wolves players. Two players of Wolves. Uh, firstly, I'd like to say thanks to Tim Spears for, for this one, uh, this initial one, because uh, this first one I took almost entirely from a piece that he wrote, uh, which is one of the funniest things I've seen and I saw all weekend, put it that way. And so my first player is Adama Traore. Now, this is the fact about Adama Traore, and this is the fact that comes from a Tim Spears article in The Athletic. Adama Traore has, has had an, ash, an issue with his shoulder, as I'm sure many people know. Uh, it dislocated four times last season, 
which is a lot, isn't it? And would be a real pain, uh, pain for him. <laughs> so recently, Wolves soft tissue therapist Matt Wignall, according to Tim Spears of The Athletic, has been lathering and lubing Traore up before games with baby oil. The idea is inspired by ancient Greek wrestlers. And as Nuno Espirito Santo says, Traore becomes more slippery. Uh, the idea being that players can't grab his arms as he runs away and potentially pop his shoulder out. So there we go. He becomes more slippery because they lube him up before the games. And that's why he looks so shiny. Uh, so if you've seen him uh, being attended to prior to a game, that's why. So that players can't grab onto him. There we go. I enjoyed that one. Here's a couple of random quotes from Adama Traore. And two, because he really has some good ones. Uh, the first one is, if I'm the same Adama as yesterday, then it's one day I have lost. <laughs> Which I'm choosing to take very literally. <laughs> that really tickles me. I like that. Nice. Yeah, I quite like that. There's something deep there. That's okay. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, you can read it as deep, or you can read it as literal, and that's where the humour is. <laughs> um, and here's another one. I think we've all heard this one before, but uh, he said, I don't do weights. It's hard to believe. But I don't do weights. It is hard to believe a Domatrore. And I also, don't believe it. Because also like when 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 an opponent grabbed when an opponent grabs his arm, you'd think that the, the kind of natural consequence of that would be just the opponent being hurled over the stand. The size of his yeah. arms are ridiculous. So well, also, anybody it just it, like you can't couldn't get your hand round it because it's no, too big. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You'd have to have massive hands. Anyway, they're lubing him up either way, so he's he's fine. He's all he's all he's he's he becomes more slippery. Uh, here, the second player is uh, Kiana Hoover, everyone's favorite right back. Kiana Hoover, I think he's a right back, but he's everyone's favorite. Uh, Kiana is uh, named after center half, isn't he? Yeah, probably. Don't know. Okay. Uh, Kiana is named after Kiana Carter, ex-professional American footballer who Kiana Hoover's dad really liked. Kiana Carter's name is actually a nickname, though. It's not even his name. <laughs> uh, and that's, the, that's a nickname that he's gone by since birth, right? I found out. Uh, it comes from the third installment of the Shaft films, Shaft in Africa, right? Didn't see that one. <laughs> that's a, no, yeah, nobody saw that coming. Um, <laughs> and it's, I just love that you named someone after someone you like, but it's not even their name. <laughs> Uh, here, I couldn't find a quote, basically, from Keanu Hoover. I don't know why. I guess maybe because I don't even know where he plays. But uh, instead, here's a quote about the film Shaft in Africa as a replacement. Uh, because critics gave the film lukewarm reviews. And the New York Times critic Roger Greenspun wrote, It's still quite good, fairly violent and very sexy, but it is less daring, less ethnically sophisticated, more antiseptic and more comfortably middle class. So that was the New York Times uh, critic Roger Greenspun's review of Shaft in Africa. Uh, and that is, of course, in place of a quote from Kiana Hoover. So we went on a little journey there, didn't we? Went on a little, uh, a little wormhole. And that wormhole takes us out, back out of the anus of uh, Joe's uh, player quotes and facts database. Uh, we're, we've been plopped back out into the main, mainland. And uh, this is where we meet our end. So uh, Seb Stafford-Bloor, thanks unto you. Farewell, Joe Devine. And Alex Stewart, uh, Dan Kishun. Bitters there. Oh, I've done that the wrong way around, haven't I? Never mind. We're all Germans here. We'll be back on Friday with more uh, about the Champions League. So hold tight until then, 
Uh, but for now, au revoir. Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.